I'd like to begin this morning by looking back to last weekend, which was 4th of July weekend, one of my favorite weekends, favorite holidays for a lot of reasons. I've got some very important images of 4th of July here for you. Yeah, those are my kids. I was, those aren't actually the important images that, we're, that I want to uh, really focus on, but uh, yeah, there's an opportunity. We uh, did the turtle races at the 4th of July picnic at Barbara Ritter's house. That is always an awesome time, and we won half of the half of the races, I think. I think the one down there in the bottom, we were stuck underneath the big turtle. So our, our, our little Scrat, was that his name? He yeah, he didn't stand a chance. And, yeah, and there's, uh, there's Colby with his buddy uh, Caleb. And let's see, we got Eleanor. She's three and a half weeks old. Now, this is actually her first Sunday here in worship with us. She's in the back over there. She said that she needed to come and, and uh, evaluate Dad's sermon. So Eleanor's here with us this morning. Um, but anyways, those are just for fun. Let's, let's look at some different images of 4th of July. Okay, so what, what are some of, the, some, of, some of the really important images to our country in 4th of July? Any other history buffs out there, history geeks like myself that really enjoy learning about this? So I didn't mean geeks. I mean, just his, enjoy the history. Um, who's that picture of? Anyone know that one? Well, that's a good guess. That's a good guess. It's not George Washington. It was actually his vice president. George Washington was the first president. John Adams was the, uh, the first vice president. That was him. He, uh, he uh, was very important as one of our founding fathers. Uh, he helped. Uh, he was one of the key members that wrote the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson wrote it, but he was right there with him and helped put him up to it. And he, I found a very interesting quote uh, that John Adams had about what did the American Revolution mean? And we've got that one here on your screen for you. What, I mean, what, was, what did it mean to the, um, the Americans at the time and these founding fathers? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that's on my next slide, actually. You know? <laughs> Too cool for British rule. Yeah. <laughs> what do we mean by the revolution? The American War. That, that was no part of the revolution. The revolution was in the minds and the hearts of the people. A change in their religious sentiments or their duties and obligations. This radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections was the real American Revolution. It was a radical change in their mindsets and their hearts and just the way they lived. See, these were people that knew that they were designed, that they were, that they had been created for liberty and for freedom, and they needed to live in such a way. So this was a reset for the country, to, for the people to live as they were supposed to live in this new land, in this reset. I've got a picture there, the, uh, uh, that document there. That's the Declaration of Independence. Next slide, we've got a, I've got a quote from that, the second sentence there. Uh, th this comes from the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are great things. These are, these are biblical principles. I mean, that's, that's what they strove for in, uh, in the reset, and um, that, that's what got them excited in the American Revolution. I got one more image uh, of the American Revolution for you. What's that, what's that image I just put up there? I mean, Liberty Bell. Yeah, we know a lot. Everyone knows that image. Does anyone know what's written on the Liberty Bell? Now I'm digging deep for the history buffs, history geeks. Leviticus is quoted on the Liberty Bell. Did y'all know that? 
Leviticus, of all books in the Bible. Isn't that awesome? And here we are in our series on Leviticus. Let's see, what is it? I've got, we'll go a little closer here since I'm sure you could read it on the last picture. A little closer. What it says is, uh, proclaim liberty throughout all the land and unto all the inhabitants thereof. How cool. They're quoting from Leviticus. Proclaim liberty. Um, you know, there's a... Uh, these 4th of July images, they tell a pretty awesome story of our country striving for these, um, these great things and, and fighting for a reset and for us to live in light of this great reset here in our country. Um, pursuing justice, liberty, freedom. That's an awesome story. The story in Leviticus... Leviticus is even more awesome. So we're going we're gonna to jump to Leviticus now and see what, what was this even referring to? What was this alluding to? And as we do that, I'm going to try to catch us up. I'm going to uh, do a little bit of review. If you want to follow along with me today, we're primarily going to be in Leviticus chapter 25. And that if, if you are using one of the Bibles that's underneath the, the seat in front of you or around you somewhere, that's on page 141 if you're using one of those Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take one of those Bibles. Uh, but that's where Leviticus chapter 25 is where we'll primarily go. But let's, uh, I'm going to catch us up for a little bit. You can go back to that slide for Leviticus chapter 23, because um, just a little bit about Leviticus. Have you all enjoyed this series on Leviticus? Yes. Yeah? Man, I, uh, our, the class I'm a part of, we do a, uh, we study the text before we come in here and Justin preaches on it. And I, and again, I'm a nerd and I tell them how excited I am for Levit Leviticus, but, and they're, at first people are like, really? But I think we've had a lot of fun diving deep in this book. The, I think that the thing is, this is a hard book to read. This is one of those books when you're just kind of reading through your Bible, you're like, okay, I'm going to spend a lot of time in Genesis, and I get to Leviticus, and I don't really understand what's going on, so this is reading right here. And I mean, I know I was, I'm guilty of that, because it's, I mean, so much repetition, and it's, it's challenging. Uh, but the way we're going about this summer, I mean, we're able to really chew in, on this text in whole new perspectives, and I know God's really been speaking to me in um, much deeper ways about who he is and how, how, uh, you know, how we're designed to be in his presence and um, you know, what sin does and what Jesus did. You know, words like atonement, uh, sacrifice. We see these rituals that are going through crazy stuff. You know, animals getting slaughtered, right and left, blood air everywhere. I mean, Justin's up here sacrificing this poor stool every week almost. And uh, I mean, that's been Leviticus. But the, I think the more time we spend on it, we see God is communicating some awesome Awesome stuff. And last week, it was last week? Yeah, I can't even remember what day it is. We, we were in Leviticus 16, and we read about the Day of Atonement. And we're actually going to skip ahead. And we, encourage, we keep encouraging you all, keep reading through Leviticus so you can get the whole chapter. And Justin's actually going to come back to some of the stuff that I've skipped this morning. Uh, but we're going to look a little bit further ahead. Chapter 23 uh, picks up, and for context here, in 23, uh, it says... Where are we in the text? It says, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount... Oh, actually, it says that in 25. But the Lord spoke to Moses, and we'll find out that it was on Mount Sinai when we get to 25. And he says, speak to the Israelites and tell them, these are the Lord's appointed times, which you must proclaim as holy assemblies, my, my appointed times. You see, God gave the Israelites all these laws and all these sacrifices to help them 
come into his presence and help them to, to live in light of him. But then he also gave them rhythms in their calendar. So as they go about life in their year, they're constantly being reminded by these set times and set feasts and festivals that they're celebrating that he is their God. And he has redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt and he has done all these amazing things in their life. And they've, he's, they've got these rhythms and you know, we hear words like feast of tabernacles and booths and weeks and we, we don't even know what that means. But when you, when you dive in and study these, we see they were communicating powerful things to the people. And we do the same thing. Fourth of July, right? That's a rhythm in our, our year where we come together as a country and remember the freedom that was fought for and the freedom that we still need to pursue. Or, you know, we, we need to live a certain way because of the freedom we have. Um, you know, Justin and I, we, we were hoping to maybe go deeper in some of these festivals, but I think this is probably some of the stuff that's going to get squeezed from the sermon series. So dive in on your own to find out what these rhythms meant. I mean, some of them Jesus redeemed. The Passover, Jesus was the Passover lamb. The um, festival of weeks, that's when the Holy Spirit came to the for the first time, and the church was unleashed. And so um, we see how God, God spoke into these festivals in powerful ways when Jesus came. But the Day of Atonement is part of that as well, and that's what we learned about last week. The Day of Atonement, that's, that's when very special sacrifices were made so that sinful people could be in the presence of a holy God. That's how the people, through these sacrifices, that's how they had access to God. Now, Jesus was once for all sacrificed. That's why we aren't in the back with the goats and the, you know, the bulls and whatever. Um, but that's what they had to do to be in their presence. That's how they got their vertical relationship right with God. That, that, that's what made their vertical relationship correct, okay? And so that's all in chapter 23. And then 24 has some other cool stuff that we're not going to get into this morning. But I'm going to jump to 25. And we're not going to read the first seven verses. But just as a summary, it talked about a sabbatical year. If you could go back just one little bit, because we're going to talk about the sabbatical year. Um, in addition to the rhythms of the year, he gave them a rhythm where you would work the land six years. Harvest, work the land, all that. You guys know those rhythms. For six years. But then on the seventh year, that was to be a Sabbath, you would not work the land. You would rest. There would be rest for the land, but rest and rest for the people in the land. That was the sabbatical year. And then we're going to get to the year, it gets to the year of Jubilee. And that's where we're going to dive into the text. So if you're with me, um, now we can jump ahead. We're going to look at the text now. Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 8. You must count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, and the days of the seven weeks of years will amount to 49 years. You must sound loud horn blasts in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, on the day of atonement. You must sound the horn, horn in your entire land. You must consecrate the 50th year, and you must proclaim a release in the land for all its inhabitants. That year will be your jubilee. Each one of you must return to his property, and each one of you must return to his clan. That 50th year will be your jubilee. You must not sow the land, harvest its aftergrowth, or pick the grapes of its unpruned vines, because that year is a jubilee. It will be holy to you. You may eat its produce from the field." That's how the year of Jubilee was initiated. And I think there's a few things that we want to kind of clue into here. First of all, they had to wait a long time for this year of Jubilee. 50 years. 
Everybody raise your hands if you're old. No. But you, 50 years, right? For many of us in this room, we, we would not have experienced a year of Jubilee yet. That's a long time. Now, how many of the people do you think got to experience two years of Jubilee? I don't know. It happens. But that's rare. Year of Jubilee was a once-in-a-lifetime experience for these people, something, I mean, something of great anticipation as they're going through their rhythms. God had brought them into the promised land, given them this land, and they were learning to live as the people of God, and they, they were having to do these sacrifices uh, to, to be atoned for their sins, and, and they're going about the rhythms, working hard, knowing that one day there would be this great year of jubilee. So that's what's going on here. That's the first thing we see. Uh, we also see that it was, it was initiated with a royal proclamation. Now, jubilee actually was like, a, I guess, a transliteration of the word ram's horn. And so this, this horn would be sounded through the land. And when they heard the, the sound of the horn in the entire land, they knew jubilee is here. This is, I mean, this is the kind of stuff when, uh, you know, when, when kings have come into a land. Uh, it was a royal proclamation. That's what we see going on here. We see that Jubilee, God calls it, you must consecrate it, make it holy. He talks about this time will be holy. This time of rest, this time of joyous celebration, God is calling it holy. It, it's something that that our holy God wants his people who he loves dearly to enjoy. He is holy, and he wants us to have a holy time of rest and celebration. Jubilee was a reset, right? What are some of the key words we're here, we see here? Uh, you, you must proclaim a release in the land for all its inhabitants. So they were released. So, so many people were, um, they had sold their property, and they were off working in other areas. Maybe they were in servanthood, but release from the land, and uh, you will return to your, to your possessions. Uh, that's what's being proclaimed during the time of Jubilee. Oh, this was good news. It was a reset to how things were supposed to be in the garden. You know, when God was with his people in perfect fellowship with his people, the land was producing its fruits and the pop, people were able to, to rest um, with their creator. This is giving them a, Jubilee gave people a glimpse of that. That's what we see here. It's also important to see that it begins with the day of atonement, Okay. They, they've been doing sacrifice after sacrifice. You had the morning sacrifice, burn offering sacrifice, the sin sacrifice, this sacrifice, that sacrifice. And then you had the big day of atonement. When the vertical relationship was made correct between people and God, then they could enjoy the horizontal relationship, enjoying the creation God had given them, enjoying time together. I mean, it talks about returning to your clan. So, so families got together again. It doesn't talk much about their activities, but we can, we can assume that there was good fellowship with each other, unless maybe they just got together and all just stared at their cell phones together. I don't know. They could have done that in their time of rest. Uh, but you can, you can envision that this was a time of people together during this time, um, really enjoying God's creation. So the Day of Atonement led to the year of Jubilee. Now, 55 verses. We're going to go through the whole thing. Ready, set, get, no, we're not going to do that. So I've got this slide just so you get the idea of, of what, where the chapter is going. We've got, just, we've got some general regulations for the Jubilee year. And we're going to say it, see it talk a little bit about um, the Sabbath Happy, the sabbatical year that goes on during this year of Jubilee. It talked a whole lot about the Sabbath and sabbatical year before this chapter, uh, but, so that's why it only mentions it a little bit in chapter 25. 
And then uh, in verses 23 through 38, uh, it's going to talk about the jubilee and the release of property. There are going to be certain conditions. Um, well, it's going to talk about certain regulations that God gave the people uh, in the way they conducted their business with property. Uh, so, and there will be certain conditions for the Levites who were only given really just, I mean, they weren't given land like everyone else. There were certain conditions for those that were in walled cities. There's speculation that uh, um, that's because if you lived in a big city, I mean, there's uh, you know, the property was, was coming up right and left. It was a little different than out in the countryside. Um, and then you get the jubilee and the redemption from slavery. And we'll talk about slavery in a second. But there's going to be specific regulations for Israelites who become poor, specific regulations for foreign slaves, because there are foreigners living amongst them, and specific regulations for uh, if, if an Israelite was a slave to a foreigner who lived amongst them. So that's, that's a very quick snapshot. And now we're going to go a little deeper into the chapter. We're going to make some observations. First observation, we're going to see that Jubilee leads us to rest. It leads us to rest. Boy, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Would any of y'all like some rest? I already made the joke about vacation, right? It's hard to find rest. All the mamas in the room are like, rest? What's, what's rest? Um, Jubilee was a time of rest for both God's people and the land. Returning to a verse that we just looked at, verse 11 through 12, it says, the 50th year will be your jubilee. You must not sow the land, harvest its aftergrowth, or pick the grapes of its unpruned vines. Because that year is a jubilee, it will be holy to you. You may eat its fruit from the field. Okay, so they didn't work at all during this year. Does that make any of y'all a little nervous? We're not, we're not going to work the field at all. We're just going to let it lie for a year, for a whole year. And there's some speculation. I mean, did 50th year, did this mean two years? I mean, commentators believe that it was, Jubilee was probably a partial year at the end of the sabbatical year, but a whole year without, without working the land there. That's, um, that takes some trust. Take some trust that God's going to provide. I mean, we've got, the, we've got our weekly Sabbath. You know, we take a break during the weekend, but that, that's not too much of a, a stretch. We can we get back to business on Monday, but a whole year. But this was God. So I am holy, and this time will be holy for you. Looking at verse 19 through 22, um, God is anticipating the questions that they're going to ask. How are we going to eat? <laughs> the land will give its fruit, and you may eat until you're satisfied, and you may live securely in the land. If you say, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not sow and gather our produce? produce, I will command my blessing for you in the sixth year so that it may yield the produce for three years, and you may sow the eighth year and eat from that six year's produce, old produce, until you bring in the ninth year's produce, you may eat old produce produce. Holy God is at work during this time of rest. Sometimes it takes a whole lot of faith. You know, we, we want to just keep doing and doing and doing. God, I've got to do more to provide for my family. I've got to build up this, this savings account, and I've got to hold on to all of that I can give later. But God says, rest in me. Trust me. Be part of what I am doing in this world, and I will bless you in abundance. Three years of excess he would bring in that sixth year for the people. That's how God moves. That's how he moved for them. And while it's completely, and while it's different in our economy and our culture today, it's the same God who is bringing his blessing and saying, trust me every step of the way. Enjoy my rest. Jubilee leads us to rest. 
and it does take radical trust. And why is it holy? It's holy because it gives us a glimpse of the creation, of, of, of the paradise that God gave in the garden and was lost, but that he's bringing back. He is going to bring it back. And he gives us the gift of Sabbath and rest to do that. So, okay, so I've talked about Sabbath a lot. What is Sabbath? This is another sermon that Justin wanted to do and, and I thought about doing, but I was really excited about Jubilee and so I'm only gonna give this like two seconds, but there's some really cool stuff if you dig into the Sabbath. Um, just one definition that I found. You know, I, I was looking at a, a book that I picked up that I've been reading through a little bit called Sabbath Keeping by Lynn, Lynn Bob. Um, <clears throat> it was an interesting book because she just, how do, you, how do you have a Sabbath today in our culture. And there, I mean, there's no set way for us to do it. Um, we can't be legalistic about it, about that. Jesus ruled that out. Uh, so what are, what are some things that we can do? And she gives lots of different perspectives in this book. But I liked her definition of what the Sabbath is. It says, what is, if we could go on to the next slide. She had, she said this, what is the Sabbath? A weekly day of rest and worship a day to cease working and relax in God's care for us, a day to stop the things that occupy our work days and participate in activities that nurture peace, worship, relationships, celebration, and thankfulness. Purpose of the Sabbath is to clear away the distraction of our lives so we can rest in God and experience God's grace in a new way. You know, some say for Christians, the Sabbath is Sunday. This is my, my day of rest. Great. We're worshiping God. We're fellowshipping with others. If this is your day of rest, that's a beautiful thing. But for me, it's, it's, this is a busy day. Uh, I'm able to find rest in, on Saturday. And um, Saturday becomes a much better Sabbath for me. Some people say, well, how can that be a Sabbath if I'm doing the bills and doing this yard work and that work? And for some people, that's peaceful. My, my wife, she's like, laundry, that's, that's, that's my happy place. Other people are, no, that's not Sabbath. Find what is restful, find a time for you, and, and find a time to fellowship with God and others. Some people, that Sabbath rest may be out hunting or fishing. It's different for, uh, for each of us, uh, but God wants us to have that gift of rest in him. And that's all I'll say about the Sabbath today, but that's a, a, such an important concept that we need to discover. So Jubilee leads us to rest, and Jubilee is good news for the poor. This is all over chapter 25. We're going to just look at a f um, certain snapshots, beginning in verse 13. We're going to see Jubilee's good news for the poor because, poor because all debts were canceled. Oh, that's kind of radical. Let's look at it. Verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, you must each return to your property. If you make a sale to your fellow citizen or buy from your fellow citizen, no one is to wrong his brother. You must buy it from your fellow citizen according to the number of years since the last jubilee. He may sell it to you according to the years of produce that are left. The more years there are, the more you may make it, make it purchase price, and the fewer years there are. The less you must make its purchase price because he is only selling to you a number of years produce. No one is to oppress his fellow citizen, but you must fear God because I am the Lord your God. You must obey my statutes and my regulations. You must be sure to keep them so that you may live securely in the land. A lot of interesting regulations here. So what this is basically saying was in their economy at the time, everything was in, in if they were to sell land, it was all in relation to the Jubilee. So if you were, if, if the Jubilee had just happened, uh, 
you would sell the land for much more because that the purchaser of the land would get 45, 40 years of land use. But if it's just five years before the Jubilee, that would come into the equation and, and that your land would be sold for much, um, much less. So interesting economic strategy here. And canceling all debts. Um, the first thing that we need to recognize here is that uh, God is not prescribing a modern-day economic strategy here. We've talked about how Leviticus, it was a lot of these laws and regulations of Le Leviticus were spe for specific people in a specific culture in a specific time, and the same is true with these economic laws. Now, I've been doing some research on, on Jubilee today, and there's been some organizations that have been trying to enact these principles literally with economic strategy. I mean, I'm not an economic strategist by any means. Uh, it could work in some cases, but God is not prescribing a literal strategy here. So what do we do with it? Um, we look deeper and see that God is communicating his heart to the people of Israel, and we can find principles that I think we can apply we have to look at the heart, though, and not be legalistic about it. So what, what are some things we know for sure? Do not wrong your brother. That's right there in verse 14. Do not wrong your brother. Do not oppress your fellow citizen. Do, do not deal harshly with them. That shows up time and time and time again. So God, God is telling his people, go about the business of economics and, and business and agriculture and all that. And as you, every step of the way, how do you do that in such a way um, that you're being loving to the people around you, that you're being loving, that you're giving glory to me. These are the principles we need to live by in our economy, in our practices. Um, I, God is not saying that we wipe away all debts in our practices. I mean, there's, uh, we're just a whole different way of doing business these days. But this is pointing to the day when all spiritual debts will be wiped away. That's an important part of this. Uh, what else can we see here? The way we relate to God affects how we relate to each other. This is going to show up over and over and over again. No one is to oppress his fellow citizen, but you must fear God. Okay, so how am I supposed to go about my business? It's, it, it, it can get pretty muddy. How do I do this in a way that loves God and loves others and I can still make a profit to feed my family, right? Well, it begins by fearing God. And, that, and that's for any situation. If we want to love others well in any of our practices, we must first have a right relationship with God, a right respect of God. We must know who he is. And, and when we fear the Lord, I mean, we respect him, and, and we are in right relationship with him, God will lead us on the path, okay? It's going to look different for each and every one of us. But the the unifying factor is that proper, relation, proper respect and perspective of who God is. What else do we see here? Um, I'm going to turn to verse 23 and 24. The land must not be sold without reclaim, because the land belongs to me. For you are foreigners and residents with me, and all your landed property you must provide for the right of redemption of the land. God is making very clear here that these rules and regulations are to show that he is the ultimate owner of the land. When they crossed into the promised land, God gave each of the tribes an inheritance. He gave the land. And these principles that he then later gave them were to remind them that you are enjoying my blessing. 
I gave this to you. Everything you have is because I gave it to you. You know, I look on Facebook and hear conversations of Christians today, and I hear a lot of people saying, I'm so thankful for the way God blessed me with my home. I'm so thankful for the way that God blessed me uh, with this new job and all this extra money. I'm so thankful for how God, if we really recognize that God has blessed us and God has given us everything, it should, it should lead us to live in such a way that we recognize it is a gift from him and we're open-handed with what he's given us. This doesn't mean give it all away. I mean, it might in some certain occasions, but how can you use the gifts that he has given you, the time that he has given you for his glory? How, you know, if, if he has blessed you abundantly, how can you use it to love God and love others? I think that's the factor. That's what he's, these regulations help the Israelites do. And that's what we need to put into practice. So Jubilee is good news for the poor because all slaves were set free. Look at the next slide here. We're going to look at this passage. A word on slavery. It's going to talk about slavery in this passage throughout 25. It's going to show that we're going to get to some verses that, that make it clear that slavery was not a good thing, but it's not something that God tried to abolish completely. And part of the reason is that slavery in ancient Israel was not the same way that you and I tend to think about slavery. Don't think about African slave ships here. Think more about there was a debt to pay, and, and so people sold themselves into servanthood. I uh, saw one commentator uh, compare it to prison. I mean, that's not a great picture, but it's, uh, you know, they were working off some time. There was a bond to pay. There was still a connection with family. Um, so the regulations here were to make slavery in that context more humane rather than abolishing it completely. This is not saying that slavery was good, and we're going to see that here. Uh, verse 35 through 43. If your brother becomes impoverished and is indebted to you, you must support him. He must live with you like a foreign resident. Do not take interest or profit from him, but you must fear your God. There it is again. And your brother must live with you. You must not lend him your money at interest, and you must not sell him food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. If your brother becomes impoverished with regard to you so that he sells himself to you, you must not subject him to slave service. So it was, in a, in a sense, he was a slave, but he said, don't treat him like a slave. God says, do not treat him like a slave. He must be with you as a hired worker, as a resident foreigner. He must serve with you until the year of Jubilee. But then he may go free, he and his children with him, and may return to his family, to the property of his ancestors. Since they are my servants who I brought you from the land of Egypt, they must not be sold in a slave sale. You must not rule over them harshly, but you must fear your God. God's people are to treat each other with dignity. Verse 20, or 36, it says, but you must, your brother must live with you. The ESV translates that as your, your brother must live beside you. These rules, God gave them these rules so that they, the people would live beside each other. That stuff happens in life. People became poor, whether it's of their own doing or just life happens, right? And so they had to sell themselves to each other. That happened, but God encourages them. Don't let those, those power positions push you further away. You, know, you must live beside each other. That's such an important thing in the body of Christ to live beside each other. How do you go about doing that? Some of us have more money. Some of us, you know, generation gap. Uh, there, there's lots of different things that help create a gap. But God is calling us to live beside each other. We need to do that. 
Why is this so important? What else is God communicating to here? He said, I brought you out from the land of Egypt and I brought you to this land of Canaan. I brought you out of slavery into the promised land and you will not be slaves again. God is, is communicating that theological principle powerfully that you are his child. You belong to God. You will not return to slavery. That's our reality too. We were, we were born to sin. We were born in bondage and we're slaves. But God has set us free and we will never return to that situation. You know, the more we go through Leviticus chapter 25, this sounds a whole lot like um, it's pointing to what Jesus did on the cross, doesn't it? I mean, we see that all over Levi Le Leviticus, that the way they lived pointed to what Jesus was going to do on the cross. And that's very interesting because we're gonna see Leviticus 25 show up in Luke chapter four. So I'm gonna, we're gonna turn there for a second. Luke chapter four. This is a familiar scene. Many of y'all may, may recognize this scene. So Jesus, in Luke chapter four, he had just been baptized. He had gone into the wilderness and 40 days of temptation, he had uh, withstood it and his public ministry was beginning. And word was getting out and he came to his hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter four. And they gathered in the synagogue, all the religious leaders, all the, uh, they were all the gathered there and Jesus stands up with the scroll in his hand the, from Isaiah. People, and people knew Isaiah. And he quoted from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to tell them, today this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. This quotation from Isaiah 61, it was recognized when it talked about the year of the Lord's favor, it was talking about the year of Jubilee. Jesus was standing before them and he was proclaiming, I am Jubilee. Jesus is that great expectation, the hope that we have. You know, it's interesting. Commentators are unsure if the Israelites even actually celebrated the year of Jubilee in its fullness. I mean, such a radical thing. And, you know, life gets, I mean, you're looking out 50 years, right? Maybe they did to some degree, maybe they didn't. But they didn't experience Jubilee in its fullness. Jubilee in its fullness came when Jesus Christ came and said, I am the one who is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. Release to the captives, regaining of sight to the blind. That's what Jesus came to do. Now, just a quick question. Was he talking about specific, the spiritual or the social or both? That's been a great debate in the church. I mean, did Jesus only come for salvation of sins? I mean, we know he did that. But was he also announcing the horizontal release from slavery and, and bondage and, and for the oppressed and the blind and the hurting? He came for both. The, the vertical and the horizontal, they work together. The day of atonement came first. Salvation of sins is necessary, but God, God cares about eternal suffering and 
earthly suffering. He cares about the hurting and the oppressed. In John chapter seven, John the Baptist is in jail and he says, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus says, um, tell John. At that very time, Jesus cured as many people, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Jesus was, was healing, Jesus was taking care of their physical needs, those who were in captivity, hurt, oppressed, poor, blind, and that was pointing to the vertical salvation. Both are important. The church needs to be about the business of proclaiming both and doing both, which leads to my last point. We are ambassadors of Jubilee. We are ambassadors of Jubilee. I'm going to make just quick mention of something that you could easily gloss over. The text talks a couple of times about a kinsman redeemer, that if, if one of the Israelites was poor, well, I'll read the text here. This kinsman redeemer, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25, it says, if your brother becomes impoverished and sells some of his poverty, his near redeemer is to come to you and redeem what his brother sold. So a family member could reach out and pay off the debt and could help lift up the downcast, the down and out brother. That, uh, that idea of a kinsman redeemer, you, you hear it in the story of Ruth. Some of y'all may be, f- be familiar with that. Jesus was the ultimate kinsman redeemer. But we can be kinsman redeemers in our world too. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting, who are crying out, I have pain, who are marginalized, who just can't get a step forward. How can you be kinsman redeemer to others? How else can we apply this message, and what else do we need to do in light of the fact that Jesus is Jubilee? I want to return to the Liberty Bell real quickly here. We've got got an image here, the Liberty Bell. There you go. I talked about the quote. What else is obvious on that? What else is noticeable and distinct on the Liberty Bell? There's a crack. That bell was designed to ring loudly. Once upon a time, it rang loudly, proclaiming freedom and liberty, but it is cracked and it cannot do what it is intended intended to do. And see, the thing is, it's great that our, our nation is striving for these beautiful principles of justice and liberty and pursuit of happity, and that's written in our Declaration of Independence. But God has made clear that the only way that th- those, those incredible uh, incredible aspects of his perfect creation can come into this world is through Jesus Christ and his church. The church is the hope of the world. Some quotes from um, Tony Evans. I want to I read to you here. Tony Evans is an uh, African-American pastor. Here was his observation when talking about the Liberty Bell. In a city known for brotherly love, a compound fracture proclaimed otherwise. The jagged divide up the side of the symbol for equality and liberty could not be any more profound in its revelation of dualistic realities. There is a gap in the Liberty Bell, a missing point of connection preventing it from ringing clearly with the smooth tones of complete union of oneness. Like the problem with the bell, a compound fracture has zigzagged through the body of Christ, keeping us largely divided along racial and class lines. This division has existed for some time, and while attempts have been made to bore out the fissures through seminars, racial reconciliation events, and well-intentioned efforts at creating experiences of oneness, we have a long way to go towards strengthening the areas that have cracks or filling in the gaps that loom between us. There are 
cracks out in this world. There are cracks in, in the places, and we don't even see them. We need to be looking. Where are there cracks in the pursuit of liberty and justice and oneness and unity and freedom? God wants to use us. Government can, can do much, but the church is the hope of the world. We must go into the, into the world and seek out the oppressed. We must go and heal the broken, find the brokenhearted and lift them up, proclaim liberty and fight for unity. It's not gonna be easy, but the spirit of the sovereign Lord is inside of us and by his power, the church can make the difference and can bring jubilee into our nation and our world that desperately needs it. That is our calling, church. Let's be jubilee in this world.